morning, everybody. Sure is good to see everyone this morning. On this beautiful day, isn't it just great to get together and worship the Lord? It really is, and I'm glad to be here with all of you. Whether you're with me here in the room or you're with us online, I'm just glad we're together. Amen? We uh, find here at Outlook that small groups are super important. And I've been enjoying spending the last uh, spring and summer visiting as many groups as I can. And on Wednesday night, I was hanging out with the group led by Dan and Ashley Benson. And I asked their group if they'd like to read our passage from Hebrews this morning. And they said yes. And so while not everyone in their group could be here, with us today are Hank and Amy Myers, as well as the Bensons. So give it up for them as they read our passage from Hebrews 7 this morning. Thank you, Hank. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able, once and forever, to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Awesome. Thanks, guys, so much for sharing that with us. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, we have this passage now open in front of us. And so, Lord, we now open our hearts, our minds to your truth. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning. Use this time, God, to grow us in our faith as we focus on your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, what we're going to see in today's passage can be summed up this way. Where we place our hope will determine how we live our life. Today we're going to talk about hope. And when we hear that word hope, we can think joyful and confident expectation, right? Uh, where we place our expectations, on what do we pin our hopes? This is a good question to ask. And of course, when you talk about expectations, you also end up thinking about unfulfilled expectations. That too is part of a discussion about hope. Things are not always what they appear to be or what they say they are. We might expect one thing and get Another. And so let's have a little bit of fun this morning before we dive into our package, uh, our passage, and ask ourselves, what if the logos of our most uh, enjoyed products were honest with us? What if what we expected and what they gave, we started to line up? Here, here would be an example. What if Microsoft Windows just came out right out and said, will work for a while, okay? Let's just set our expectations correctly here. Don't get your hopes too high. Windows will work for a while. Or how about this? None of us wants to really realize this, but Duncan, right? 
I don't want to see that. Let's just move on to the, to the next one here. Or is this true? Nintendo really means just nothing to do. Now, I have to say I'm known to play our Switch every now and then precisely because I need nothing to do. Now, we're getting a little personal here if you're uh, a big fan. Sugar bomb combos, I don't know, uh, with a jolt of caffeine perhaps, but we're just going to pretend we never saw that one. Uh, this, these last couple get a little close to home perhaps. Uh, Instagram really just breeds insecurity often, doesn't it? And feeds off of insecurity, sad, but true. And Netflix is really just providing our next fix, isn't it? Far too often. All right, if you liked those, I picked them all myself. If you didn't like them, I didn't make any of them up. Okay, I just found them online. Uh, but what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus doesn't disappoint. He is always who he claims to be. He's everything he claims, and he's everything we need. Where we place our hope will determine how we live our life. And hope placed, our highest hopes placed in anyone or anything other than him will end up disappointing us. Our expectations will find themselves unfulfilled. When I say the word hope, one way I like to describe it is like this. Hope is the song that is stuck in your head and in your soul. It's the tune that just keeps playing. Uh, this happens a lot around our house. Uh, I'll say a phrase. Tamara will end up singing a song with a line of what I just said because it reminds her of that. And then that song gets stuck on our head for a day or two or, you know, whatever. This happens constantly uh, between us. Hope, metaphorically speaking, in our lives, hope is the song that's stuck in our head. What are we constantly returning to in our thoughts? Where are we finding our, mo the, uh, our highest enjoyment, our satisfaction? What you and I are placing our ultimate and supreme hope in becomes the soundtrack of our lives. What song do we keep returning to? What, where are we placing our hope. So let's dive into our passage this morning as it teaches us where our hope is best placed. Verse 16, Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical, physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi. Now, real quick, let's remember, this is a letter written to Jewish Christians. These are folks who grew up in the Jewish faith. They've now said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. They have a rich tradition and deep uh, knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, which we call our Old Testament. And so they would be very familiar with the idea that priests, like we talked about last week, the intermediaries between us and God, that priests all descended from one guy. His name's Levi. And so this, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus became a priest not because he descended from the tribe of Levi, but how did he become a priest? By the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. Now, this is a pretty singular phrase in the scriptures, put exactly this way. In fact, more than one person uh, writing about this as I was studying this week pointed to this as one of the greatest phrase, phrases in all of scripture. The power of a life that cannot be destroyed or the power of an indestructible Life. This is a great way to describe why Jesus is so central, so important, so worth placing all our hope in. His life is indestructible. Now, this should get our attention. If an indestructible human 
an irrefutable teacher, an incredible savior walked this planet, I need to pay attention to that fact. That, that should get my attention, and then I need to pay attention to him. What did he say? Who was he? What was the, what was the effect of his life, his death, and this resurrection I keep reading about? This is a big deal, an indestructible life. Now, as an aside, uh, when I was thinking about this, I was reminded of one of my favorite television shows as a kid. Anyone remember The Six Million Dollar Man? Okay, now I'm totally showing my age here, and uh, if you're younger and you're like, oh my gosh, I've never heard of that, and this was in the 70s, all right? But Steve Austin uh, was an astronaut who was crushed in a test pilot uh, crash, a test piloting crash, And so if you remember the opening narration of The Six Million Dollar Man, it went something like this. No, it went exactly like this. Okay. Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Okay, this is the the beginning of the show. Now, as a kid, I have to tell you, I thought this show was awesome. I love this. And, And the narration goes on. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. We can make him better than he was before, better, stronger, Okay, at least I'm not alone. Okay, yeah, better, stronger, faster. So the idea was that Steve Austin, or at least some parts of him, he had an eye that was bionic, he had an arm that was bionic, I think one of his legs was bionic, right? So he could run fast, and with the one arm he could lift things and and do things. He was, at least in some ways, indestructible or becoming that way. And it was just a cool concept. Now, it got even better, right? I don't know if you recall, but his girlfriend was a a tennis star who was crushed in a parachuting accident. So then he convinced all the folks to help him to help her. And she became the bionic woman and got her own show. And they even got married in the 90s. I mean, this thing just lived on and on and on. It was a great show. So you can go YouTube that later and thank me for it. (laughs) Although I have to admit, I always felt a little sorry for him. Because, you know, $6 million man, he's just defined by his price tag at that point. It's kind of like, yeah, Steve, you couldn't stop that runaway train with your one bionic arm, but dude, $6 million. I mean, we paid $6 million for you. We expected better. Is that how you see me? Just a price tag? All right. Mercy laugh right over there. I actually told first service that I wasn't going to do that joke uh, in this service, but then I decided, hey, why not? Okay. Let's get back to the passage here, what we really came here for. Verse 18, yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. Ouch, that's a pretty harsh thing to say. For the law never made anything perfect, but now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. What's going on here? Well, the writer of Hebrews is making something clear that that these readers needed to hear. The law, what we call our Old Testament scriptures and and the commands that are found there, right? Uh, The writer is saying here that the law never made anything perfect. And when we read the word perfect in the scriptures, in the original language, it means whole, mature, and complete. It doesn't mean perfect as in like squeaky, clean, flawless. It's more like all put together perfect and, 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 and mature and whole and complete. And so the law never did that. The law pointed out our flaws, but never helped us get put back together. We now have exactly what we need there in the gospel. So in other words, the commandment may point to a higher path, but it doesn't provide the power for the climb. The law may illuminate a wiser path, but it does little to ignite the love that's necessary to keep me on that path. This code of conduct that we read 
here makes my every stumble clear and brings into stark relief my separation from God and just how much I need a Savior. These are the functions of what you might call the Old Testament law, those commands. Serves a purpose, but when it finds us now in Christ, it has served its purpose. This is a recurring theme in the scriptures, certainly in the book of Hebrews. This is the way Jesus put it in his Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, this is a pretty bold thing for Jesus to say. He's talking to the crowds here and teaching them, and he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so the experts in this law, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about here? Well, we, we know elsewhere in scriptures, in the scriptures, that the law is described as a tutor. You might remember Amy, our next-gen kids minister, in her excellent sermon a few weeks ago, talked about this very point, that the law, the Old Testament code of conduct, the commands there, is like a tutor. When we're young, we're on a tough subject, we need a tutor. The law was like a tutor that guided us through some basic truths. But it, a tutor is always meant to be a temporary need, fulfills a temporary need. So we too must understand, and even now as 21st century Christians, that what we call the Old Testament, precious and holy as it is, must now always be viewed through the lens of the new. It is a tutor. Jesus is our teacher. Jesus is our rabbi. He teaches us, as he puts it here, truth and full righteousness. What he's saying here by righteousness is not self-righteousness, not being holier than thou. What he's talking about is a description of a full and robust life, or the word perfect we heard earlier. The idea that true righteousness, a chance to just live a whole and healthy life before God who made us, that is now made available through Jesus. And so that kind of righteousness is never made available through the law, through the rules. The rules actually just highlight the fact we need a Savior. Jesus comes and then is that Savior. And his good news is that now life in him and dwelling, the indwelling Holy Spirit gives us the power to now live in a way that's righteous or full or, or robust and wise and good before God and before ourselves and before others we now get to live in that way. That surpasses anything that the law could have pulled off. Whole and wise living, how to stop doing stupid stuff, how to love God, how to love others well. Doesn't that sound great? That is exactly what Jesus teaches us. See, as Jesus followers, we are meant to be people, the people who are walking the earth, who know how to live well, who are learning how to live well well. Now, again, getting hung up on the rules and the traditions of the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, may not be our most pressing problem, if a problem at all, for those of us listening today. But as with any old and useless way of thinking and seeing the world, all those have been superseded by the good news of Jesus. Here's another bold thing that Jesus said to the crowds at one point. He said, the people of Nineveh 
will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. What's he talking about here? He's reaching back into the Old Testament. He's telling them, he's referring to a story, a true story, that all of them would have known instantly. And that is the preaching of Jonah the prophet to the city of Nineveh. And he says, man, the people of Nineveh are going to stand up against all of you and condemn you on Judgment Day, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. He's saying the Son of God, the Messiah you've all been waiting for, I'm here, I've declared myself one way or another, I'm, I'm making it clear that something amazing is happening through the miracles, through, through my teaching, here I am. You're not listening. Many of you aren't listening. Some of you want to kill me, right? He's saying, but someone greater than Jonah is right in front of you. He goes on, again, grabbing from an Old Testament Story, the queen of Sheba will also stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon, King Solomon, wisest man who ever lived until Jesus. Now someone, what? Greater than Solomon is here. He's reaching two powerful Old Testament characters that they would all know very well. Again, if you're de steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, these would mean everything to you. And he pulls them right up and he says, I'm greater than them says, you refuse to listen. So just like we saw a couple weeks ago when we learned Jesus is greater than the angels, Jesus is greater than Moses, Jesus is greater than the temple, Jesus is greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, we're reading today. We now today, we might easily agree with all of that. No problem, I got that. Yeah, I agree. Jesus is greater than all of that. I, I see that. But we have our own challenges in this regard. Jesus is greater than, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about how Jesus is greater than wealth and our pursuit of it. Jesus is greater than success and all the things we might do in pursuit of that. Jesus is greater than popularity, a lot of likes on social media or our reputation or you name it. But let's take it one layer deeper. Even that might be easy for us, at least on a Sunday morning with our Bibles open in church, to say that Jesus is greater than all those things I've listed so far. But let's take it one layer deeper and remind ourselves that Jesus is also greater than some other loves that are full of virtue and goodness and yet should not ever be the places where we pin our highest hopes. Marital love or parental love. There's this great line in one of C.S. Lewis's books in which he talks about how that brass is more easily mistaken for gold. And what he means by that is, in the context of, of that, is that there are loves in our lives that really vie for first place because they are perfectly virtuous and full of wonderful things and, and gifts from God, whether that be a good marriage or raising our kids and, and stuff like that. But if either of those, for instance, become our number one love and where we place our highest hopes, then even that can begin to tarnish. They look really shiny and it can even be mistaken for gold, the highest thing. But don't do it. Don't do it. We ask ourselves, what do I believe makes a good life? And from where do I believe such a life comes? The answer, of course, is only fully in Christ. What do I believe makes a good life? We have confidence, we read here, in a better hope. So what are we putting our hope in, or at least our ultimate hope, or even a lot of hope? The stock market? Right? I hope not, right? The next election? Nah. 
But even our kids' graduation, oh, I have a lot of hope about what will happen next. Or one of our kids' weddings, or maybe one day a wedding. Or having grandkids. These are all beautiful things to be thinking about and looking forward to and hopeful about. But often, they can slip in and become the thing we pin all our hopes on. They are the song that's stuck in our head. And we begin to build so much of what we might think of as our joy and our happiness or our fulfillment or our life's meaning on whether or not they happen or happen the way we think they should. We must not let anything that can be lost be the thing we put our hope in, or else we'll find ourselves lost in the end. So in a way I could say, I'm I'm really calling us today to a fresh encounter with Jesus as our true and only real hope. He's everything that you need. He's way beyond whatever you think you want or think you need or I need. No matter how long you've been following Jesus, whether it's decades or days, I would urge you today to say yes to him again. Just say yes to him in a fresh way that you want to follow him and you want to reaffirm today that all your highest and greatest hopes are pinned on him because he has an indestructible life. You can scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you. You can go to outlookchurch.org yes. Either way, you can get the conversation started. I'd love to chat with you about what yes to Jesus looks like. Let's go to verse 23. There were many priests, the writer says, under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. That's straightforward, right? These were human beings who lived and then died. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Now, again, we're seeing this word old. We just read about an old requirement that was weak and useless. Now we're learning about an old system. This is a recurring theme as well. Old being replaced by new. That God is doing a new thing in Jesus And as the series began a few weeks ago, we learned Jesus Jesus is not just a new thing. He's the crescendo. He's the final word. He's the greatest word. He's the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. And that this new thing redefines and becomes the lens through which we see all the old things. And so in this this little part of our passage, we're seeing that this, how frail and, and fragile this system was administered by mere humans, necessary for a time, but not for all time. And that Jesus, man, he lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. This is a forever fact, a permanent principle that we pin our hopes on him and we need never be hopeless again. Have you ever said or heard someone say, right, it's good to have something to look forward to? Yeah, we all can relate to that. You might have a summer vacation coming up. And it is. It's fun. It's good to have something to look forward to. It's a little hope, right? It's a little dose of hope. And that's an absolutely normal and and human thing. The beauty of that dynamic in our human souls, that there's always something good, that's always nice to have something to look forward to, is that as in Christ, we always do 
No matter what the circumstances of our life are like, no matter what is happening in our lives or in the world or in those in the relationships that we have or in the lives of those we love, we always have something to look forward to when we know that we have eternity with God. Now, that's not all we have. There's plenty of things to look forward to in this life, and God is the giver of a lot of good gifts. But no matter what, we always have something to look forward to, and that is an eternal, unchanging hope. Because he lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. And we, as his followers, get to enjoy that forever. Verse 25 says, For he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. Let's be super clear on this. Saved from what? Saved from ourselves, first of all. All our old ways of thinking, our biases and prejudices, our wrong-headed, self-imposed limitations, saved from our own inclinations to do things our own way and ignore God. Rescued from what? All that separation from God means to a human life. Lost in the truest sense of the word when we ignore God, but then found and given direction, the direction we need in him. Rescued from this decaying uh, world. We live in this world that's disintegrating, and yet he redeems us. And we begin to grow, to integrate, to become whole and strong. The whole world is atrophying. We, as Jesus followers, get to grow in strength and in wholeness in our souls. Such saving and redemption in that we become unbound from sin. Not impervious from its influence, but definitely freed from its tyranny. In a weekend in which we'll celebrate freedom and independence, let's remember that the highest freedom that there is to give was not bought by anyone but Jesus Christ. Freedom from sin is the ultimate freedom. And freedom to worship is not given to us by any human being, but by Jesus himself. Freed from the residue of regret. Freed from the pollution of the past, finding forgiveness, a love that won't let us go, a washing from within. This is how he saves us. And who is us? Those who come to God through him, which can be any of us. Let me just urge you today, no matter where you think you are with God, you're just checking this whole thing out or you've been walking with him for a long time, let me just encourage you today. Maybe you feel like you've wandered or you're far or you're just not even sure. Wherever you are, take a moment and just begin to turn the gaze of your soul toward him. Take even a baby step in his direction and you will find him already looking at you with loving eyes, already reaching out to you with loving arms, already running to you in an eagerness to restore whatever's been lost between you. He's not there to Keep that separation. He's done everything he knows to do, everything that could be done to bridge that separation. Take just a moment and turn to him, and you will find him right there, ready to receive those who come to God through him. Don't miss this wide open and well-lit door just because perhaps you think there should be more doors or more ways. He's provided a beautiful and wide open, well-lit way in Jesus. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf, we read. 
I was meeting with an outlooker this week, and we were having a really interesting, fun, deep discussion about all kinds of stuff. And at one point, uh, they asked, why doesn't God stop bad things from happening? Ever asked that question? You bet. I think we probably all have. And as we talked it through, I found myself saying something, kind of realizing something I'd never fully articulated or realized before. God has stopped all kinds of bad things from happening by inviting me to accept his love. Me, apart from Jesus, is not only capable, but absolutely given to doing all kinds of bad things, hurting people, saying terrible things, who knows what I'd be like without Jesus. The way God stops people from doing bad things, because there's lots of bad things that happen in the world, right? We live in a fallen world. People are given the free will to choose their own lives and to do things, sometimes horrible things, right? How does God stop bad things from happening? What's his strategy? His strategy is Jesus and his love. His strategy is spreading that news of the gospel, that fact that God loves us no matter what, and offering us this free gift of salvation. And that human soul by human soul, heart by heart, person by person, we get to say yes and accept that gift. And as I accept that gift, I begin to change. And all kinds of bad things that could have happened or would have happened, people that I would have hurt, things I would have done, that no longer becomes part of my story, part of my timeline. And history has changed in that way. How does God stop bad things from happening? By loving me and you. By offering a gift that we can choose to accept. Think of what it feels like Back to our passage here. Think of what it feels like to know, to really know that someone is praying for you. We read here that Jesus lives forever to intercede on our behalf. I get to feel this regularly, and it blesses me deeply. Those of you who tell Tamara and and who tell me that you pray for us regularly, that's such a sweet thing. And I got to tell you, it makes a difference. Now think of what it means to know that Jesus himself is praying for you. That you have a human in heaven present on your behalf. He has not forgotten you. He does not neglect you. His love for you has not run out. Not one bit. He is the kind of high priest we read that we need because he's holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He's been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Such a high priest truly meets our need. He's holy and blameless. He's pure, set apart and exalted. He fits our need. He's gentle and humble because I'm prideful and experience shame. His wisdom and his light counter my ignorance and my dimness. His strength counters my weakness. His hope helps me in despair. He is in a category all his own. That's why we've called this series Ultimate and Supreme, because those are the words and certainly the ideas that we keep encountering throughout this letter to the Hebrews, that he is in a category on all his own. He is certainly better, stronger than any $6 million man, right? And when he sees you and me, men and women who, spiritually speaking, barely alive, he can do more than rebuild us. He doesn't just replace some of our parts. He has the power to make us new and whole and complete. That is real hope. Where we place our hope, that determines how we live our lives. 
So I'm going to invite you to take your bread and cup if you grabbed it on your way in. And let's just end our time together by remembering again that this is where we place our hope. And it does determine how we live our lives. We're talking about where we pin our hopes this morning. And it makes me think of like, like I like Google Maps. I like using it if I need to go anywhere. I like knowing how to get there, right? And get, show me the best way. And you know how that works, right? You place a wayfinder where you want to go. And as far as I'm concerned, this moment right here for us every seven days is exactly like that. It's like a wayfinder. It's like a pin that we've put in the map of our lives so that no matter what, we keep returning to this point right here. And it's at this point we are just saying to ourselves because we need to hear it. And we're certainly then saying it to God. This is where I find my hope. It's in you, Lord. It's only and ultimately, supremely and confidently in you. So let's take the bread and let's remember his body was broken for us and do it in remembrance of him. And as we take the cup, we're remembering he shed his blood for us. Forgiveness of our sins was so important to him that he would die to make it happen. And that's what we remember as we, put, as we put our hope in him. Let's take a drink together. Let's pray. Lord, our hope is in you. There are lots of things in our lives that uh, we do hope for, certainly. And, and we do have expectations and we do look forward to. So many things are good gifts from you. But we declare at this moment, in this, this moment of clarity as we're together with your word before us, that our ultimate hope is in you, Jesus. That a lot of things can go wrong and get sideways in our lives. Many things that we can't control or predict. But you are reliable. You never disappoint. You fulfill every expectation. The, one, the ones we know about and the ones we're not even aware of. You fulfill them all, Lord. You are completely sufficient for our souls. You're our greatest hope. You're our living hope. You're our permanent hope. We thank you for this and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.